We'll hear argument now in number 01704, United States versus Bean. Mr. Needler. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. In each year's annual Appropriations Act, Congress has prohibited the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms from investigating or act- acting upon applications for discretionary relief from firearms disabilities under 18 U.S.C. 925C. The Court of Appeals held that in the face of that statutory bar, a Federal District Court could itself grant respondent relief from firearms disabilities. That holding is contrary to fundamental principles of judicial review of agency action under the Administrative Procedure Act. Under the APA — Mr. Needler, you you call it a statutory bar. I I thought there was some um, difference in appropriations uh, uh, statutes from ordinary ordinary laws. Are are the two exactly the same? Could could Congress create a, a substantive obligation, for example, in an appropriations law? provide that, um, oh, I don't know, no, uh, uh, nobody shall uh, uh, sell stock on Tuesdays. Could they put that in, a, in an appropriations measure? Yes. A, a, an appropriations law is, for purposes of Congress's lawmaking authority, no different from any other sort of law. That's our holding in Robertson, isn't it? Uh, yes. Now, uh, what, what the Court has said is that if, if a subsequent appropriations statute uh, is said to um, — repeal or suspend the uh, application of a prior law, uh, that intention has to be made clear. But here we think that there's no question that the Annual Appropriations Act uh, is clear. There's nothing implied about what Congress did here. There is an express prohibition against ATF either investigating or acting upon applications for relief. You call this a suspension of the law? Yes. I mean, I, I, effectively, it's a, it's a suspension. It's, it's an annual or it's a, suspension, a suspension for a period of one year. I, I suppose Congress, because it will maybe, maybe, I suppose Congress could say this law that we enacted a year ago is suspended for 10 years and will not go into effect for 10 years. I suppose it could say uh, that. Uh, yes, absolutely. Congress, Congress could certainly do that. Well, that's a, the holding of Dickerson, is it? Yes. Uh, and, and so uh, what we have here is an express prohibition against ATF exercising the power that Congress conferred on it. Uh, under the Administrative Procedure Act, the only power a court has in judicial review of agency action is to review what the agency did. And it may only set aside the agency action if the agency action is arbitrary or capricious or contrary to law. I, I don't know if it really bears on the case, but suppose Congress had a completely different scheme and it said uh, that the firearms uh, violator's license could be restored if he applied to United States District Court. No agency at all. You just go to court. Uh, would that be a violation of Article 3? Well, I think there would be a question um, about that. There, um, as I recall, there uh, there was a, and I, I think it still may be true, that courts may grant uh, applications for naturalization. But the court, I believe, in, um, concluded that there was at least an implicit adversarial process in the sense that the, that the government could appear uh, on the other side of the case and, and oppose it. But I think you raise a very good point in terms of what, what would be the traditional way that something like this would be accomplished, and that is that it would be natural, and this is what Congress did in 925C, to confer this authority on the executive branch, and it did it in very broad and general uh, terms, uh, and then provided that uh, a person 
whose application is denied may uh, file a petition in district court for judicial review of such denial. In other words, under 925C, it is the denial by the ATF, not the application itself, that is the subject of judicial review. Is the the refusal of the ATF to act on an application uh, pursuant to this uh, provision in the appropriation uh, a de facto denial that's we, we think it is not. We, uh, as we explained in our brief, we believe the word denial in that context means a denial on the merits. Uh, and this is what a number of the courts of appeals that have looked at the question have held. And what, what Congress said in the Appropriations Act is that ATF is barred from a- even acting upon the application. In other words, it can't either grant or deny the application for relief. And therefore, the predicate for judicial review under 925C is missing. We're not saying that there is no judicial review at all. The general provisions of the APA uh, remain available. And under 5 U.S.C. 703, the avenue for judicial review or the form of, of judicial review is either the special statutory review procedure, in this case 925C, or in the absence of that or its inadequacy, then another appropriate form. In other words, the general provisions of the APA. But once again, the power of a court under the general provisions of the APA is simply to review the agency's action and to set it aside if contrary to law. And here the action was not contrary to law. It was compelled by law. The, the, the most direct avenue that respondent could have challenged uh, the agency's uh, approach in this case, its, its, its failure to act, was under uh, Section 706.1, which provides for a court in reviewing agency action to set aside agency action that is, uh, or excuse me, to compel agency action that is unreasonably delayed or unlawfully withheld. And again, there was nothing unlawful about ATF's withholding of a decision on respondents' application for relief because Congress compelled uh, that withholding. Mr. Needler, there was a there was an alternate argument that a foreign conviction shouldn't count uh, for this purpose. And has the United States ever taken a position on that? Yes, yes, we have. It is the position of the United States that foreign convictions uh, uh, are covered by the Act. Now, that is not before the Court. Uh, In fact, below, respondent conceded that a foreign conviction is a proper predicate under 922 uh, G1, Um, and uh, the 11th Circuit has expressly declined to reach that question. It wasn't presented in the petition, and it's not uh, not before this Court. Indeed, the question of whether uh, a foreign conviction would be a proper uh, predicate is something that would be raised under 922G in a, in a prosecution, as we point out in our brief, there is a circuit conflict on that question. But that conflict has arisen in cases, criminal prosecutions brought under 922G, and that would be the proper place to begin to uh, make that claim. Uh, the, the, neither the general provisions of the APA nor 925C provides uh, someone who is wondering whether he may or may not be covered by a provision of the federal criminal laws to bring a declaratory judgment against the United States to determine whether conduct he hopes to engage in would be would be uh, would be covered by a particular criminal statute. So even though it it, it it isn't before this court, but we also believe that this would not be the proper avenue uh, in which to raise such a claim uh, in any event. Uh, uh, respondent has argued that that what is going on here is an implied repeal 
of the judicial review provisions or the jurisdiction of the federal courts to act in a case such as this. And as I've said, there's nothing implied. What Congress did was expressly bar ATF, and it otherwise left the court's authority unaffected. 925C remains in effect. It's just that by virtue of Congress's prohibiting ATF from acting on applications for relief, there's no denial which could be the predicate for review under that, under that special statutory review procedure. Well, you think that that's 100 percent clear? I mean, in Robertson, the amendment of a prior statute was affected not by the simple means of withholding appropriations. I mean, it set forth different language that was going to govern the matter. Here, the only thing that has happened is they're not given any appropriations. And you think it is not a matter, you think it's entirely clear that when the Secretary receives an application and says, I cannot act on this application because the appropriations rider forbids me, you think it's entirely clear that that does not amount to a denial of the application? I think that's the better reading of the statute. Well, it may be the better one, but is it clear? I mean, the law is that unless you make it quite clear in the appropriations statute that you are intending to amend a prior law, the prior law is not amended. Again, our position is not that Congress amended the judicial review provision of 925C. What it did was prohibit ATF from acting. 925C's judicial review procedure is still in effect. The question is whether Congress's directive to ATF not to even act upon applications for relief constitutes a denial. And as I say, ATF is barred from either granting or denying relief. And I would refer the Court also to the general definition of agency action under the APA, which we cite in our brief. This is 5 U.S.C. 551.13. It defines agency action as an agency rule, order, license, sanction, relief, or the equivalent, or the denial thereof, or a failure to act. So under the APA, which is the general statute governing judicial review of agency action, Congress itself has defined a denial of relief as something different from a failure to act. And I think there's every reason to look at 925C's reference to a denial as being consistent rather than inconsistent with the general definitions that Congress has applied under the APA. I would also add, though, that it doesn't matter that even if the ATF's decision were viewed as a denial within the meaning of 925C, the general APA standards for reviewing that denial still apply. As we point out in our brief, this Court's decision in Zerko and the prior decision in the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers both make clear that even where you do have a special statutory review procedure that establishes the form for judicial review, the nature and character, as the Court said in Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers, of that judicial review is defined by the general provisions of the APA, Section 706. And again, under those provisions, the Court can only set aside agency action that is contrary to law. And again, here, the ATF's action was compelled by law, not contrary to it. So whichever avenue this suit was thought to have been brought under, there is no basis for the district court to grant relief at all. 
And we, we also think that that is uh, entirely consistent with the Congress's purposes in enacting the appropriations bar. The legislative history, which Respondent has uh, produced as an appendix uh, to his brief, explains that uh, Congress had become concerned uh, about the inherently subjective nature of the inquiry that ATF was undertaking and the severe consequences that could result if ATF had made a mistake, and also that Congress believed that the money that was being spent for that purpose, $4 million a year for 40 positions at ATF, would be better well, served. Why, why didn't it just repeal the thing then? Because it didn't have the votes? Well, what it decided to do was to proceed on an annual basis, it would, uh, at, which means it could be subject to revision each year. It was, it was a, it was a uh, practical uh, compromise. Uh, the Third Circuit uh, explained in Pontarelli that the same people who were supporting a permanent uh, repeal in 1992 were also the movements for, for, the, uh, for the annual appropriations rider on the theory that it accomplished essentially the same thing. Uh, on an on an annual uh, basis, um, this was in the appropriations law just for the ATF, or for the whole Treasury Department. It's, it's in the it's in the provision for ATF. If suppose that uh, the secretary uh, had some other agency, the Secret Service uh, didn't have much to do that month. Could he direct them to process some of these applications? Um, I, I think not for uh, — there's another sentence in the uh, appropriations provision for ATF which says that no um, money may be spent to transfer functions from ATF to another department or agency. And I think the reference to agency in that provision would probably include other provisions — or, excuse me, other agencies within uh, the Department of the Treasury. And the Secretary of the Treasury, Treasury personally um, — couldn't be expected to act on applications like this. Um, the Secretary, um, as this Court pointed out in the Dunn decision, Well, would he abuse his discretion if he, tr if, if he took, took that function away from ATF? You say that there's a provision in the statute that he — that the Secretary himself cannot transfer functions? It says no funds shall be spent, I believe it says, under this Act to transfer functions to another agency within ATF. Well, how, my, how much money does the, would the Secretary spend if he signed an order transferring, transferring a function? Well, the, the clear, the clear uh, import of what Congress directed is the function shall not be transferred. That was, that was clearly what Congress was driving at. But it wouldn't be a transfer to another agency if the Secretary did it himself. Right. But the, the Secretary — uh, first of all, as Congress well knew when it passed this appropriations rider, the Secretary has delegated the authority for acting on these applications to ATF. That is the legal framework. What he gave, he could, he could withdraw. He could revoke. He, he, uh, perhaps he, I mean, he presumably could, but the proper avenue for, for a respondent to pursue in that situation would be to request ATF, or excuse me, the Secretary, to revoke the regulation that, that uh, produced the delegation and then if the Secretary declined to do that, to seek review of that under the APA on an arbitrary and capricious standard. Uh, Respondent has not, has not pursued that avenue, and, and we think it would manifestly not be arbitrary and capricious for the Secretary to, to withdraw that delegation and take on that function himself with all the other functions that are before the Secretary of the Treasury uh, in, with respect to the nation's economy and banking and all, and, and all of those other matters. And in particular, it would not be arbitrary and capricious for the Secretary to decline to do that in the face of the appropriations bar that Congress has uh, enacted. Uh, 
with the, again, with the, with the clear understanding that it didn't want uh, these applications to be acted on uh, administratively. Mr. But in Needle, any event, it, no, Mr. Needle, if we shift the focus from the agency to the court, is it your essential argument that Congress provided for an appellate, essentially an appellate role for the district court and not a first instance role? Yes, that so that the only authority that the court would have would be to review a decision made by an, an executive official. But there is a provision in this law for the district court to take additional evidence. Usually when, when a court is performing a review function, it doesn't take any evidence. Uh, excuse me, that's correct, but, but it would — but even, even the admission of a or acceptance of additional evidence would be an aid of the APA review, which is, again, of the agency's decision. A court receiving evidence is not unheard of under the APA, even under the arbitrary and capricious standard. As this Court pointed out in Overton Park, occasionally there will be situations in which additional evidence or an explanation from the agency could be uh, received uh, uh, in, in, in judicial review. But that's only supplemental. Of, uh, of the record that was before uh, the agency. Well, so the agency doesn't always have to make a record. I mean, suppose the agency just, uh, you know, just makes a decision. Um, why can't this court uh, treat it as a matter of review? That is, the, the, uh, the issue before the court will be whether, whether the, um, the action here, assuming it's a denial, was unreasonable. The question before the Court would be whether it was arbitrary and capricious or unlawful. And again, it wasn't unlawful because Congress compelled it. Congress compelled the Secretary or ATF not to act on the application. Now, whether or not that's called a denial, the bottom line, the failure to, uh, to afford any relief was compelled by Congress. So the agency could not set — or, excuse me, the Court could not set that aside. Looked at another way, the only relevant evidence that, that would be — that would be introduced in court would be evidence of the fact that respondent had applied during a time when, when the uh, statutory bar on ATF's action was pending. Those, that is the only, only relevant evidence uh, that, that — Mr. Needler, that, can I ask you a question? Supposing the uh, secretary or the head of the ATF, either or both, say they spent the weekend together sometime, they read through the papers on their own time on a Sunday afternoon and said, gee, this is a case of rank injustice. I think we're going to grant the uh, uh, petition. And they entered some kind of an order granting it. Would that have violated any statute? It would. It would violate this statute. The, 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 the order, whatever they might have read in their own time, the order would be, it would be taken in, in their official capacity. And the and uh, I suppose and they drafted it on Saturday and signed it on Saturday. It would still be in it would the, It'd the be in their official capacities, but it wouldn't have cost the government a dime. It doesn't. The, the statute doesn't say official capacity. It says expend funds. It says expend funds, but it but it means to act. But it says to uh, it, it, it is directed to the actions of the ATF in its official capacity. Only an official act of ATF could could relieve someone from firearms I suppose the argument is that uh, the, uh, certainly the Secretary and perhaps all Federal officials don't get paid by the hour. They get paid for all the official actions that they take during the year, so that even if they take it on a Saturday, they're being compensated. That, that's that's correct. And Minimally, but compensated. They, 
they are, they are paid for the office, not for the, not for the work that they are performing. Nor could the Secretary direct ATF to grant it because, again, he would be directing an unlawful um, act. If there are no further questions, I would like to reserve the balance of my time for rebuttal. Very well, Mr. Needler. Uh, Mr. Goldstein, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Congress, in Section 925C, provided individuals like Respondent Tommy Bean two rights vis-a-vis the Secretary of the Treasury of the United States of America. Individuals may apply to, quote-unquote, the Secretary for relief from firearms disabilities, and if the Secretary denies that application, they may secure judicial review. The obvious flaw in the government's position this morning, as several of the later questions identified, is that Congress has never expressly or impliedly repealed those rights vis-a-vis the Secretary. The appropriation statutes that are before you address only the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. Congress has set aside a separate and special budget for the Department of the Treasury generally, which is under the control of the Secretary, it's for $123 million, and the right to proceed before the Secretary is unaffected. Well, now, did, did your client seek to proceed before the Secretary? Yes. Page 27 of the Joint Appendix is the application. It's directed to the Secretary of the Treasury, care of BATF. We went, as the statute directs, to the Secretary of the Treasury. The Secretary of the Treasury told Tommy Bean that he was not going to restore firearms rights. The well, def- this was not a personal conversation between the two. <laughs> we don't have his number. That's right. We wrote him a letter, as the statute requires. He didn't say denied. He said, I am not going to act upon and that's, that. Whereupon your remedy under the Administrative Procedure Act would be to sue in district court for uh, agency action unreasonably withheld. With respect, the premise and the conclusion are not per- of, of, your, of your question are not correct. The ATF, on behalf of the Secretary, said, I'm not going to grant you this relief. The definition of denial, the statute does not say deny on the merits. The definition of denial is a refusal to grant the requested relief. Mr. That's Goldstein, what- may I back you up just a bit because I'm looking at the letter you cited. It is addressed to the Secretary, but it's care of director of the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. And Congress passes all kinds of laws giving the Secretary authority to do this or that, which the Secretary invariably delegates. And I can't think of an instance where a regime of disorder is taken over by the Secretary herself rather than by some delegatee. But this is kind of thing that's made to order for, for um, not the top person, but for to be delegated. Can I address both the question of whether there are other examples of the scheme we describe, which is to say the agency head does it, and then the question of whether or not if this were a novel scheme, it would matter. The premise that there aren't parallels to this is not correct. I can give you three examples. The Attorney General is required to personally certify any person who's going to be subject to the federal death penalty. That's 42 U.S.C., uh, 18 U.S.C., uh, 3593. Under the Civil Rights for Institutionalized Persons Act, which is 42 U.S.C., 
1997A, the Attorney General is required to personally certify a prosecution. And there are various federal criminal prosecutions for civil rights violations, which are at 18 U.S.C. 245. How does the statute make it clear that it's a personal obligation or a non-delegable obligation? What are the words that it uses or that those statutes use? It's the two in combination. 925C says the Secretary. 921A.17 defines the Secretary to mean that individual or the delegate. Then what Congress did is it came along in the Appropriations Act and said, we recognize, well, I'll give you the literal language, is that ATF may not investigate or act upon it. No, no, I'm sorry. My question wasn't clear. I I want to go to the examples that you were giving of personal obligation, and you used the adverb personally. Yes. Certify, et cetera. How do they provide for that so-called personal action? They generally say the Attorney General shall certify, and the courts have interpreted that. I believe there is an example that says personally. Which we don't have here. We definitely do not have here, but we have the equivalent. And then I'll get to Justice, the underlying question of Justice Ginsburg's, and that is, does it matter if this is done in a different way? We have here the, the parallel, because what happened is that Congress defined the Secretary to be that individual or the delegate, and in the appropriations laws has told ATF, as the delegate, that they may not act on anything else. And the parallel provision that Mr. Needler pointed to, which is that the Secretary may not transfer to any other division or agency. What Congress did not say, and this is extraordinarily important, is the key to the entire case. Congress did not say that no funds in this or any other act or no funds in the subsection dealing with the budget of the Secretary of the Treasury may be uh, used. Now, it is that — Well, it, maybe, it, maybe it didn't say that because it thought it was perfectly clear that if it didn't want uh, public money used under, under the, by the delegate, it presumably wouldn't want public m- m- funds used for the same purpose by everybody else, which seems like a fairly reasonable assumption. I mean, maybe why so. isn't it a reasonable assumption? It may be. But what well, I'm, if it is a reasonable assumption, haven't we got to take that into consideration in interpreting the annual bar and hold against you? Otherwise, we'll be clearly — we would clearly be going against the intent of Congress. No. And that's the underlying point to Justice Ginsburg's questions. Which, this which my first question started out, it seems that you, in the beginning of this process, understood that the — the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms was the relevant actor because you addressed the secretary care of that agency, not the secretary. And let me explain why. The 27 CFR 178144A, which has never been repealed, required us to send it to ATF. We had no choice. There's a regulation on the books that says we have to submit it to the director. We didn't have a choice. But to make perfectly clear that it was directed to the secretary, we say we send it to the secretary, care of ATF. But I need to return to Justice Souter's question, which is, is it good enough in this case, as in many other instances of statutory construction, to say we get the general sense of what Congress was trying to do? The answer is no. In this area of law uniquely, Congress has to turn square corners. The the relevant text of any statute is Section 925C. It's never been repealed. It says — Well, what what you're saying is that Congress was just wasting its time here. It was trying to do something. It just didn't accomplish it. No, Mr. Chief Justice, and let me get to that point. And that is, I agree with you that it would be foolish to say that the Appropriations Acts are completely ineffective. And if our interpretation were to deprive them of any value, we agree it would be highly questionable. It is not. The scheme that results is clearly one under which 
the Secretary will grant only those applications where the right to relief is perfectly clear, whereas in this case it is — How do you know that? You say the scheme that results. Uh, I don't see how you can see that from the enactment in question. Because, Mr. Chief Justice, what Congress did is it created a system under which the subdivisions underneath the Secretary may not investigate or act. It's left to the Secretary. And now it is — But that just doesn't fit with the real world. The idea that the Secretary, on his way to the International Monetary Fund meeting, is going to address an application like this just doesn't make sense. Mr. Chief Justice, with respect, we dis- — well, first of all, the text of the statute we think is enough on its face. But on the question of whether or not it makes sense, we think it does. Because — and I will point you to several other examples in federal firearms law where Congress has adopted categorical rules allowing fed- felons to have their rights restored. We believe this is a safety valve. We're not saying that the Secretary has to grant any particular application. What we're saying is that Congress recognized that there would be extraordinary cases. What what Congress was faced with was that ATF had spent $20 million granting 3,000 applications. And that's what the legislative history shows that Congress was trying to cut off. What we're describing is a very different animal. It is an animal that's in the text of the statute, and that is the Secretary is still empowered to grant relief. Now, Justice Ginsburg, one of the premises of your question was that there's a delegation here. The delegation here is not exclusive. The delegation here provides that, and this was in 19, when the BATF was created, the Secretary provided that the Director shall act under the general supervision of the Secretary and under, excuse me, and, and, and under the supervision of the Assistant Secretary. The parallel that's drawn by the Solicitor General is to United States versus Nixon and to the Accardi case. And those were exclusive delegations. In United States versus Nixon, this Court said, and this is at page 695 of the opinion, that the, uh, the special prosecutor had plenary authority and the regulation provided that the Attorney General shall not interfere with the, sec- with the special prosecutor's decision. And in Accardi, and this is at page 266, the court said that the scheme in Accardi was that the attorney general would act only after the Bureau of Immigration Affairs. And that clearly contemplated that the AG would stay out of the process. In any event, not only is this not an exclusive delegation, but our fundamental point is that it's an illegal delegation. Mr. Goldstein, I would uh, — you, you are concentrating on the agency end of it. Looking at it from the perspective of a court, you seem to be making of the district court uh, an entity that doesn't exist in the U.S. system. You are having the district court, in effect, being an examining magistrate. There is no adverse party. You are having the district court determine whether there's sufficient evidence to warrant restoring the license. We don't have district judges performing that kind of mixed function, proceeding in that ex-party way. It would be extraordinary for Congress to make such a provision, and yet you want us to infer it. No, Justice Ginsburg. Here's how it works. The statute contemplates when there's a denial, and we will take up probably the question further of whether or not there's a denial here, but to focus only on the judicial review aspect. When there's a denial, you file a petition with the federal district court. What happens in all the cases will be what happened here, and that is that the district judge orders the United States and the secretary made the party defendant. They come into the case, and they have the opportunity to put on evidence to examine the witnesses that happened here. But the United States came in and said, uh, we are disabled. Congress doesn't want us to play a part in that. 
seems to me then the, you fight that out, and if the agency isn't disabled, the district court orders the agency to act. But that's not what you asked for. You asked the district court to um, restore this person's license, and that's the relief you got. Justice Ginsburg, you are correct what we asked for. You are, with respect, not correct about what the government said in this case. The government did not come in and say our hands are tied. The government did press its argument that there wasn't jurisdiction, but it absolutely did participate on the factual side of the case. I can give you examples. JA-51 is the examination of Tommy Bean, and then the cross-examination by the Assistant United States Attorney. JA-55 is the opportunity given to the United States to cross-examine the Chief of Police. Did the United States take the position that this license shouldn't be restored? No, precisely the opposite. JA-37 is the United States. I don't understand how there was an adversary proceeding then. What happened is they came in. I've confused you with the timing. On January 20, uh, 2000, there was a hearing held before the federal district judge, Judge Fisher. The United States participated. It did not say we are prohibited from participating. They had been given the opportunity to take witnesses. And let me detour very briefly, and that is to say that while the appropriation statutes prohibit ATF from acting on applications, we are now talking about, as you've pointed us to, the petition. And there is nothing, and that's the distinction drawn in Section 925C, ATF is not disabled from participating in the district court. To return, there was this hearing on January 20. The United States was given the opportunity to put on evidence. It cross-examined witnesses, as I was just describing. Immediately afterwards, the uh, respondent being submitted proposed findings of fact and conclusions of law after that adversary proceeding. At J- In what sense was it adversary? Usually, if the, if the, if the, the Bureau hadn't been disabled by Congress, it would, say, deny an application, and then there would be a determination on the merits. But here, apparently, there was no, there was no position taken on the merits. I'm almost there. There was. JA 37 is the United States' response to our proposed findings of fact. And they conclude at JA 37 that our proposed findings of fact are supported by the evidence. Finding of fact 27 is that petitioner that he, we were the petitioner there, petitioner, based on the circumstances of his disability and based on his record and reputation, would not represent a threat to the public safety. And finding of fact 28 that they conceded was that granting petitioner the relief he requested would not be contrary to the public interest. What happened here is that the evidence was so overwhelming. We had six chiefs well, of Why, why if, if the United States was a party, as I suppose is the purport of your saying, why isn't that a violation of the appropriations rider so that we must disregard it? Be- because, Justice Kennedy, nothing in the appropriations rider prohibits either of the two following things. First, the United States attorney showing up and representing the United States, relatedly the Secretary of the Treasury showing up, or the ATF participating at the petition stage as opposed to the application stage. I think it's very important to recognize here that this case has proceeded up until today on the understanding of the parties that the evidence about Mr. Bean's entitlement to relief was overwhelming. Six chiefs of police, a priest, a local prosecutor. I don't know that that's an argument. I mean, I concede that. Uh, I'm still left back at Justice Scalia's question because I thought in response to his question, you, uh, I had the impression you were suggesting that the secretary had somewhere written a piece of paper that, in effect, denied the application. And I looked through this appendix, I've been doing that and listening, 
uh, at the same time. <laughs> and I cannot find that right. letter. All I find in the appendix is, a, is something written by Ms. Pamela Patachik, who is from the ATF, and what that says is because of the restriction, we are returning Mr. Bean's application for restoration. That's the end of that. He can apply again. Now, is there some other piece of paper? No. No. Our position is... Well, then, if there is no other piece of paper, what is the response to Justice Scalia's question, which was simply that there has been no denial, they returned the application, and if your client felt that they should have acted on it, he should file... Uh, a, a request uh, in the district court to, to for, for of course, as soon as you do that, the secretary will come in and say, of course I didn't act on it. That's what Congress meant. And then the question will be whether that's a reasonable interpretation of this statute. And then, of course, uh, the government thinks, of course, it's a reasonable interpretation. And, and uh, even if it's an incorrect interpretation, at least reasonable. Right. Now, now that, that's where I am, which is, I think, where Justice Scalia was raised. Uh, Justice Breyer, you have several questions. Let me deal with them in the following terms. Was there a denial here? Second, does it matter whether there was a denial here? And third, is it sufficient that the government's position and interpretation is reasonable as opposed to compelled by the statutory language? The plain meaning of the word denial is a refusal to grant the relief requested. Our position is that when ATF turns around and sends us a letter saying we're not going to act, that is, it's not a failure to act, it's a refusal to act. That is a denial, and I can point to, to their own regulation that means it must be so. Under subsection I-1-3 of the governing regulation, which unfortunately is not reproduced in any of the documents, but, uh, we, I, I, we do cite it, I apologize, uh, but it is not uh, quoted in any of the appendices. Under that provision, ATF said that any person who is a firearms licensee, let me briefly draw the distinction here, and that is there are people are allowed to, to have firearms under state law, but there are federally licensed dealers, importers, collectors. In the latter class, any person who submits an application to ATF is allowed to continue operating for 30 days until, until 30 days after the denial. If the government is, and that's a quote, of the denial of the application, if the government is correct here, it would make the profoundly, have the profoundly illogical consequence that no licensed collector has ever been denied and they all have the right to continue operating. Well, that's true if we assume your first premise that a failure to act is a denial, and that's the question. Oh, no, just the reverse, Justice Souter. Let me be clear. The regulation says that you get to keep operating under your license until 30 days after the denial. What I'm saying is if you accept Mr. Needler's premise, that all these letters that ATF has been sending out are not denials? No, but the, that, that, that provision assumes that there is going to be action uh, upon the request, that, the, that, that ATF or the Treasury will take it under advisement and, in effect, say, yes, we'll tell you yes or no when we've had time. And that's not what is happening here. And if that, in fact, is a fair distinction, then the statute you're, you're just referring to doesn't even apply. Justice Souter, if the government is correct, and I won't belabor this point, if the government is correct that the ATF letters don't count as denials, then every licensed dealer in the United States can continue operating indefinitely. Well, once again, we're just going around okay, in a circle. If we accept your premise, sure. If we don't accept your premise, uh, that a refusal to act, and in fact a very candid refusal to act, is tantamount to a denial, uh, then your conclusion doesn't follow and the statute that you refer to doesn't apply. 
I'll, I'll move on then. I, I respectfully disagree, but I, and I think the language will track in our direction. But let me move on, because Justice Breyer had two subsidiary questions. But in respect to that, is there an instance where they sent a letter back to a firearms licensee saying, uh, well, we, we aren't going to process this because of the uh, statute, and then the pro- firearms licensee said, well, you haven't denied it. I'll stay in business. And then they went to the firearms licensee and said, no, you can't stay in business. I don't know the answer. All right. Well, if we don't know the answer to that, we don't know. In other words, whether or not this reg does or does not stand in the way. Well, my impression. Sorry, I understand. My impression is that it's a form letter that goes out to everyone. Mm -hmm. Now, you had I I had promised to come back to the question whether, in this case, it matters that we didn't get what this court would conclude to be a technical denial letter, notwithstanding if you accept the rest of our argument that we had the right to compel the secretary to give us one. So to, to play this out, our position is that the Secretary had the duty to act. The question back to us is, well, maybe the Secretary didn't act here. My point is that doesn't matter. The question presented by, before this Court, if I could take you to it, is that is fundamentally, and this is the text of it, whether a Federal District Court has the authority to grant relief. The government has never contended, again, in the District Court that there was an insufficient premise for us to be in District Court. The, the question before this Court is whether or not the right, uh, excuse me, the, the provision of, for judicial review in Section 925C has been repealed. And that takes us back to your third question, Justice Breyer, or third subsidiary one, and that is, is it enough, and this is Justice Souter's point, is it enough for us to recognize basically what Congress was after here? And I return to the answer, it is no. TVA versus Hill, Will, Robertson, many other, Dickerson, of this Court's precedents make perfectly clear, and this was the question that Justice Scalia started out with, that an appropriations repeal has to be categorical. The conflict between the two statutes, Section 925C and the appropriations law, have to be irreconcilable. And that is not the case. I here. don't know that that was the holding of Dickerson. I mean, they went into legislative history. Uh, you, you, you couldn't just say it jumped out at you. Well, Mr. Chief Justice, then I will take you to TVA versus Hill, which does address this issue. The Court has made perfectly clear that the kind of legislative history here, the kind of legislative history that would draw Justice Souter and possibly Justice Breyer to the conclusion that we know basically what Congress was trying to do, those are Appropriations Committee reports. And this Court could not have been more clear that those are not an accurate indicia of con- congressional intent. They aren't passing. before we get into legislative history and it how it bears on this, I see Congress having established traditional roles for the executive was going to be the investigator, the court was going to be the reviewer. The agency says, we have no authority to act. When a court says, we don't have authority to act, it's not granting or denying the relief requested. So isn't that the proper way to look at what the agency is doing when it says, we have no authority to act, it isn't granting or denying? And then on the court, the court said, Congress set us up to be a court of review, not first view. The agency hasn't looked at it because it says it has no authority to do it. Congress did not give us the authority ever to take a first view of this. 
Justice Ginsburg, let me — can I start at the end of what, of the, what I think is the consequence of several of these questions and then come back to the difference between administrative review and judicial review and whether this would just be unknown to American law? The very best we think that the government can get out of this argument is a judgment of this Court that says we were entitled to a remand to the Secretary. When we came to Federal District Court and asked for relief, the best the government could do was an order that says, no, you should have acted. What, what can't be the case, we believe, is that the Secretary would be able to just let these things pile up on his desk and say, I've never denied them. Tough. Now, this, what we take — He them. He said we, the, the agency has no authority to rule on these applications. Right. And if we conclude that's not a denial, we can't get into court. The government's answer, I think, if we move down the road, will be that we should file another lawsuit, an APA lawsuit, that says to compel agency action unreasonably withheld. And if you take that position, if you conclude that this is agency inaction instead of an agency refusal to act, the sir reply to that, the answer is that you should treat this as an APA action. The provision that Mr. Needler is quoting to you, 5 U.S.C. 703, says that the form of an action under the APA shall be the special review provision provided by statute, and that's Section 925C. If we were required to file under the APA, we did. That's what All right. the I, I, But the serious underlying question here is I, I agree with you that you found a literal way around this. And, and so you're saying, well, if there's a literal way around it and you have a statute saying do it, uh, that you ought to do it, whatever the form of the action is to get the case here. And uh, I guess the underlying thing is, well, my goodness, everyone knows what Congress wants here. Uh, it's perfectly obvious. And so a secretary who said, I'm not going to enforce this statute because Congress doesn't want me to, even though there's a literal way I could do it without technically violating the actual language of the prohibition, does the secretary have the right to do that? Well, I would think the answer to that question is yes. Because otherwise, Congress can't work. Well, the answer to the question is no, and let me explain why. Mr. Needler... <laughs> Thankfully. Uh, Mr. Needler framed the question as whether or not the Secretary abused his discretion by not withdrawing the delegation, by saying, I knew what Congress was up to. This is my agency. I know how this thing works. The answer is that this is not a question of abuse of discretion. It is a a question of a clear statutory command. Section 925C says that we can apply to the Secretary and clearly contemplates that the Secretary will act on these things. It's not an option. Let me just be sure about one thing. Is your submission limited to cases that you think are totally clear on their face, or does it cover cases when they're marginal issues of fact? The right to apply to the Secretary would remain. We think it's clear that the Secretary, once his obligation to act is recognized, will set up standards. He'll say things like, I'm only going to grant relief if it's an absolute — the legislative history refers to a technical or unintentional violation where there are sworn statements in front of me that make perfectly clear this person is no threat whatsoever. That'll be up to the secretary. The secretary will get to decide. And if if he's granting too many applications, Congress will come along and say no funds under this or any other act shall be expended to investigate or act on appropriation on 925C applications. The critical thing is that the government does not dispute that this appropriations rider, ever since 1993, is in the subdivision that applies only to ATF. If you want to talk about Congress working, they need clear instructions. We can't have the executive branch out here saying, I don't really like this statute, and so I'm going to infer that it's been repealed, and we can't have the courts doing that, too. It will take no effort whatsoever if this is what Congress really intends to strip away the statute and to do it in appropriations law. 
I'm still left with, assuming all that, I'm still left with the problem that you've asked for the court to make the decision rather than asking to have the secretary make the decision. Okay. We have now, I think, a different question of administrative law, and that is the fundamental fundamental principle in the APA context or a parallel like 925C. Is it only the court that can enter the order saying you have a right to relief, or where's the proper order, send it to the secretary and saying it would be an abuse of discretion, it's absolutely clear, under the statute, you're entitled to it. Now, the court here did the latter. If this court decided that was technically incorrect, it could reverse on that ground and say, no, 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 the correct technical judgment is to put it back in the hands of the secretary. You didn't ask for it to be put back in the hands of the secretary. And neither did the government. You're saying the court had an obligation to give you something you didn't even ask for? Mr. Justice Scalia, they gave us what we asked for. I apologize for that. If, if that was the wrong thing. If, if they should have, if they should have done something else, then this court can tell it so. But we, I don't think it's fair to hold us to the position that the government did not object that only the secretary, in this case, when you go through the district court record, that the only proper remedy is in order to the secretary to grant us relief, as opposed to granting us relief personally. Remember, as I quoted to you from the findings of fact, the government left the playing field here. It admitted that with all of the evidence we had, no one could reasonably dispute that Tommy Bean was perfectly entitled and represented no threat. The only question They participated on the fact side of the case. Their only argument that they attempted to advance was that the district court was powerless to do anything at all. With respect, we did what we were supposed to do to get relief here. And if the court decides that it only should have gone to the secretary, that's a minor change in the judgment. I I still think participation by ATF in the judicial proceeding is within 925C, and Congress has forbidden that, too. Uh, Justice Kennedy, let me be clear on what money was spent, because there were technical questions about this. The United States Attorney's Office participated here, not — There was an ATF agent who testified, and that's within 925 — purview of 925C, and Congress says you can't do that. With respect, there was one, one agent who was one witness. The appropriation statute says you may not part- investigate, which is not what he was doing, and you may not act upon, which is not what he was doing, upon applications, which this was not. It was a petition under Section 925C. There was no prohibition, and the ATF agent did not object that I'm not allowed to be there. We did — we put the witnesses on that we were supposed to. Can I ask, uh, under your view of things, can the secretary use assistance, or would that constitute a delegation? He can. What he can do is he can take and is required to take up into his own hands, as the three examples I gave to Justice Ginsburg, the responsibility. He can detail. He has a budget of $123 million, $141,000, and he can take them up into his hands and say, Look, I've got these sworn statements, and he could require, I want 10 sworn statements. He could require, I want 20, and he can have someone confirm that that's the right person. But what we do think, and this goes back to the Chief Justice's question, is that we do not think that Congress contemplated that the Secretary would spend $20 million granting 3,000 applications. If he decided to... Mr. Goldstein. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Mr. Needler, you have 10 minutes remaining. Mr. Chief Justice, um, the argument that the Secretary could have granted relief was never raised below in this case. It was not raised in the Court of Appeals. It wasn't raised in the brief and op. It was raised for the first time uh, in Respondent's uh, brief. Uh, and again, if we think the proper avenue for that would be a suit to the uh, suing the Secretary under the APA or No, but, but his point, and that actually, although he raised it late, is certainly a factor. That seems to me the most powerful argument. That, that there's no point sending it back to the secretary. 
really, even though that's the correct procedural route, if the Secretary under the law has no choice. And what he's saying is the Secretary under the law has no choice. And the reason is because, literally, this appropriations measure doesn't cover the Secretary's action. And given the absence of that, the Secretary's under a statute that tells him act. And moreover, he adds, this is a very bad way to repeal a statute, that really under normal legislative principles, if they want to repeal it, repeal it. And therefore, it isn't wrong for us to consider this literally in this circumstance. Now, that, I think, is a, that, that's, a, that's an argument that's worth hearing what the reply is. Well, I, I, first of all, I think it is wrong. It would be a different, it would be a different uh, disposition of the judgment. But with respect um, — Well, maybe we'd reach uh, right, right. The disposition would be one thing, right. but he's saying that's really what the right. heart of this is about. There, there is — first of all, let me, let me make another point, which I, I think goes very much to the Secretary's authority. We point out on page 4 and 5 of our reply brief, general principles of appropriations law, that are really a particular application of the general principle that the specific governs the general. And under, under appropriations law, when, when Congress appropriates a pot of money for a particular task, that's all that can be spent for that task. Uh, money can't be drawn from some other pot to perform that task. We think that principle should apply a fortiori, or at least it's a reasonable interpretation for the Secretary to make, that when Congress has prohibited the expenditure of any funds by the agency to whom uh, the Secretary has delegated that authority, that Congress did not expect money to be drawn from some other pot. That is a general principle of appropriations law. At the very least, the Secretary should be given the opportunity. What is the authority for saying that's a general principle of appropriations law? There there are a number of controller general uh, opinions uh, that we cite at the bottom of page four of our uh, reply brief, uh, and it's against principles like that that agencies always act in deciding how they're going to spend money. But if this argument was going to be made, the right disposition would be would be to present it to the secretary, so the secretary can construe this statute just like all the other statutes that need to be uh, administered. And the way to do it's, that is it's one thing to say that when Congress says we give five hundred thousand dollars to subunit B to perform this function, you cannot use two million from somewhere else to perform the same function. That's one thing. It's something quite different, however, to say that when, when you have forbidden one unit from doing something and there is a general statute which allows the secretary to do it, that that prohibition also applies to the secretary. I, I just don't think it's parallel. Well, at, at, the ver- at, at the very least, it would not be arbitrary and capricious for the secretary to decline to withdraw the delegation. That, we think, is the, is the question that would arise in that situation, because the Secretary now may not act on these applications. He, the ATF acts under the general direction of the Secretary, but if the Secretary directed ATF to uh, grant one of these applications, he would be directing an illegal act. He would have to withdraw the delegation. He hasn't been asked by respondent to do that, which would require a petition for rulemaking. The Secretary, in deciding whether to take this power back to himself, could at the very least take into account what Congress has said about not wanting these applications to be acted upon by ATF, and also the reasons that Congress gave, which is that this is a very subjective undertaking with high risk, 
and Congress decided we don't want this function being performed because of the, the potential consequences. We want this money to be used for other purposes in, in fighting crime. All of that would, would make it entirely reasonable for the Secretary not to take on this function uh, uh, himself. The other important point to notice is that no, he has a statutory obligation to perform the function, I was, I was just which going has to, not been canceled I was just by going the to, appropriations it, 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 He does not — nothing in the statute says that the Secretary must act on applications. It says the Secretary may grant relief. It does not require him to grant relief. And the, the, the Secretary could very easily withhold action, which is, after all, what Congress required ATF to do. What, on the ground that it's like the pardon power and it's like a matter of grace or something like yes, that? Yes, very much so. It's, and it, it's, it's or, or as the Court uh, said uh, four or five terms ago in the Yang case that we said in our brief with respect to relief from deportation, it is exactly like uh, the pardon power. And it's written in very broad terms. It establishes several preconditions whether, whether the person would be dangerous to the public safety and whether granting it would not be contrary to the public interest. And even then, the Secretary is not required to grant relief. This is a very broad discretionary power. And I think it ties in to what Justice Ginsburg was asking earlier. Wouldn't this be an extraordinary power to give to the Federal District Courts? Indeed, it would, because the question is not just whether the person might be dangerous, but whether granting relief would be contrary to the public interest. That's not the sort of determination a court can make in the first instance. It's something that Congress has assigned to the the Secretary. In this case, even if Respondent is correct that that he wouldn't be dangerous, it doesn't follow that restoration of firearms uh, abilities would would be consistent with the public interest. That's a judgment that Congress invested in the Secretary, not in the courts. And um, as Justice Kennedy pointed out, uh, ATF could not investigate an application uh, for, for relief in connection with a judicial proceeding any more than it could uh, in, in an administrative proceeding. The ATF agent who testified in this case was one of respondents' witnesses. He was not called by the government. Is testifying investigation? Pardon me? Is testifying investigation? Well, that would be — I mean, we did not object — the government did not object in the district court to his testifying. He was just testifying as to what, what he had looked up in the, in the records. But an investigation involves far more than that. The fact that the AUSA in this case cross-examined Mr. Bean and a couple of other witnesses, but that's far short of the investigation that Congress expected ATF to undertake when it was performing these functions, and that it did undertake, which involved an investigation uh, of, of the crime, neighbors, uh, not just the people who, uh, whom respondent has put forward, but ATF would go out and develop its own independent leads. None of that, none of that capability exists when the government is responding to an application uh, uh, filed uh, in court. Um, so f- for these reasons, we think it is — Mr. Nieder, yes. if, if you've had a chance to complete your rebuttal, I had one question. Do you think the Secretary's authority under the statute is broad enough so even without any act of Congress or anything in the appropriation, the Secretary could have adopted a policy, we would rather use our money on other purposes, so we're not going to process any application? I, I, I do believe it's, it, is, it is broad enough. I think the Secretary — all it says is the Secretary may grant relief. Uh, I think the Secretary could decide. And, in fact, the regulations, uh, 144D, has some categorical exclusions that the Secretary had adopted, but the District Court in this case ignored. Even uh, We think the Court couldn't act at all, but it even ignored the standards that the Secretary had adopted in the public interest to, to implement what would be public interest standard under the statute. The District Court ignored them. So we think that the Secretary could make a categorical determination not to grant relief.
Thank you, Mr. Needler. The case is submitted.